You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome to the show. Joe, thank you for the invitation. It's, I'm just going to be interested in this. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Man, so I just wanted to kick this off, and please, I, I hope that I'm not overstepping my mark here. Uh, but if anyone does it, uh, although you certainly don't look it, um, a quick Google search, you are 87. You're the co-founder of Reebok. The company was sold. But if you don't mind me, obviously, revealing your age, I would love to know at your, you know, at your age, most people, they just want a quiet retirement, go and play golf in the Celtic Manor, you know, but you've been busy. You've written a fantastic book. What motivated you to write that? Well, I mean, I actually retired from Reebok uh, from a full-time job at the end of 1989, which is a long time ago. And uh, I decided, yes, well, let's take some time off. Of course, I thought I'd retired, but the phone never stopped ringing. There was always somebody had a question. Joe, what happened with this? When did this happen? So I, I've, I've been continuously talking to Reebok of be, uh, being part of whatever they're, they're doing. But uh, I, I really sort of thought, well, now's the time just to sit back, let somebody else have the day job and uh, enjoy the sunshine in Tenerife, which I did. It was nice. Yeah, relax, whatever. It took a bit to get over the, uh, where's the next uh, ticket? Yeah, I mean, I I was flying around the world three times a year. <clears throat> so I was at 35,000 feet so much. And, uh, yeah, and uh, eventually when I decided I'd better get off, that was it. But that, that was, it's like a drug. Like, you know, what am I doing here in Tenerife? Where's the next ticket? <laughs> so for a while, but it didn't take too long to get over that. But what I did do is uh, we, we now have, we now had computers and we started to get mobile phones or cell phones. And I'm reading Wikipedia. I'm reading Google. And they're telling me how Reebok started. They're also a photograph of Joe Foster, founder of Reebok. No more right. I don't know who. The, it might have been Joe Foster. He certainly wasn't me. <laughs> So I don't know. <clears throat> so we started this. We changed our name. We did all, all sorts of stories. So I thought maybe it's time. Maybe it's time I wrote it all down and let everybody know this is how Reebok started, and in fact how the Foster family were involved in sports footwear, athletic shoes from way back 1895. So that's what prompted me to write the book. And I have to say I've been reading it, and it's. You know, almost like a, a roller coaster for me going through the book. Some of it is is pretty bonkers. So I wonder if you just mentioned your your family business, but I wonder if you could take us back to the early days where you grew up and really the family business that you were involved in at the start. Well, had my grandfather been born probably when I was born, he and his genius. He used his genius the way he did back in eighteen ninety five. I mean. It would, it would have been incredible, absolutely incredible. I think we did okay with Weebok. <laughs> <laughs> we did just a, just a little bit. <laughs> <Just a, laughs> 
<clears throat> we did get to number one eventually, but uh, in, in 1895, he invented the spike running shoe, which was quite a, quite a thing in those days. And where did he get his idea from? Well, that was from his grandfather, would you believe? His grandfather was a cobbler. And he was a cobbler down in Nottingham. And he used to repair street shoes, but also cricket boots. And cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. So this obviously gave my grandfather a bit of a mm, thought. Why? Because mm, he was a member of his local athletic club, Bolton Primrose Harriers. He, he liked running. He wasn't very good. Went halfway down the field on a normal sort of 1,500-kilometre uh, uh, race, something like that. Um, and he thought, if I put spikes in the bottom of my shoes, would it help? Because they ran on cinder tracks. So he, being a cobbler, like his, far, his grandfather, he made himself a pair of track spikes, or pumps as they called them in those days, with six spikes in the bottom. And his next race, yes, he came a very unlikely second, which most of his uh, teammates were sort of very suspicious, looking at what he'd got on his feet. And, of course, that was the beginning of a business. <clears throat> Everybody wanted Joe Foster's spikes. So he grew his business, and by 1900, yes, he, he had a real business going. In 1904, he had uh, three world records at one event in Glasgow. And by 1908, he had gold medals at the uh, London Olympics. The second decade of uh, the 20th century, we had World War I. Mm. Not good. Nobody wanted to run issues. So they ended up repairing uh, army boots boots brought back from Flanders, and uh, that kept them going until, until the second decade, the 20s, the 1920s. That was, uh, that was his, his decade. That was his belly pop. Fantastic. We do have a letterhead from the 20s, and on it we have, he supplied 96 rugby and football teams, and we're talking about Man United, Man City, Arsenal, we're talking about all the big teams in Liverpool. You mentioned, and they're all there. He supplied them all with boots. And he also supplied the Antwerp Olympic Games in 1920. All the athletes there. <clears throat> well, that's, I mean, that's magnificent. Brilliant. Mm. Way before Adidas, way before Nike. He was, he was the king. He did it all. Unfortunately, he died in 1933. And I wasn't born until 1935. Never knew grandfather. But... I'm born on his birthday, the 18th of May, which is coincidence or whatever. But much of a coincidence, so much so that my grandmother said he brought his name with him. So my grandfather was Joe and I am Joe. So that's the beginning. Uh, that's where the family started. Amazing. And do you know what's interesting is that, you know, any person now that goes on Instagram and they follow major influencers will see these people promoting uh, teeth whitening or uh, detox tea or whatever, <laughs> whatever rubbish people promote. And this inevitably blows these companies up. Your grandfather seemed to be a master of doing that. So I wonder how important were, quote unquote, influencers for, for that business at that time? <clears throat> well, I think it's a fairly simple uh, way of looking at business. You know, to get people to buy your product, you show how good it is by somebody making a 
world record of uh, winning a gold medal, which is the same today. It's not changed. Influencers are people uh, that were a product, use a product, and uh, and people look up to them. People respect them. So yes, grandfather before before he ever knew the word influencer, before ever, anybody knew the word influencer, he was. He knew what influencing meant. He knew how to get people to buy his shoes. And some of the advertising he used to do was ridiculous. Um, and you, you can go back to the, uh, uh, probably the 1900s, um, when he advertised, if anybody thinks that uh, J.D. Foster spikes are not the best spikes they've ever worn, um, we'll give you £100. Can you think <laughs> £100 in those days? <laughs> You know, we're probably talking about £10,000, something like that today. You know, it's incredible. <clears throat> I don't know if he ever gave £100 away, by the way. I mean, we, we don't have any, any follow-up on those ads. But, you know, incredible sort of uh, initiative and the way to get his, uh, uh, his products around the world. I mean, luckily for him and luckily for Reebok in many ways, uh, Athletics Weekly was, of course, if you're a runner, you're part of a club, Everybody bought Athletics Weekly. So advertising in, in that sort of helped promote the brand and grow it into what J.W. Foster's became. But, uh, yeah, so unfortunately he died, say, in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. And, of course, four years later, we have World War II. So we have blackout. Six years of World War II, <clears throat> not a great deal of education. A little bit, but um, most of the guys had gone off to fight a war. So uh, we, we had a few women teachers, and uh, and that, that was okay, but there were not enough to go around, obviously. And uh, <clears throat> But, of course, by 1945, the war is over. I'm 10, Jeff is 12, and uh, we start enjoying life like most people do. The lights are on again. You know, we can go – well, we couldn't go buy things because rationing was very much uh, – uh, very much there and for I think it's five or six more years we had rationing but uh, at least the lights came on and uh, we were a bit lucky <laughs> well, I say lucky my grandmother had bought a car a Renault okay. before the war and of course the problem is this was a French car and France was occupied and in those days they had a crown wheel and pinion which was the driving shaft really for the car and that had, that had gone so the car spent the whole of the war in the garage <laughs> so, until after the war, and then he managed to get it repaired again. But um, why he bought a Renault, I don't know. Um, in fact, we used to call it a Renault because we, we didn't know this French pronunciation <laughs> of Renault with a T at the end. But um, yeah, so now, now things are starting to get back, back to normal. Um, you know, you go to the local dance hall and we were doing, I was playing badminton, Jeff was on his bike cycling, and that's great. Um, I think Jeff joined the company when I was 15, but I went to college and did engineering. I studied engineering, and I, I joined the company when I was 17. One year after that, when I'm 18, I'm surprised enough, even though Jeff had done two, two years more, we both went, within six months, we were both doing national service. So here we are now, national service, two years away. You know, you, you learn an awful lot. Mother's not preparing your food. She's not doing your washing. 
doing all the things that normally you get done being at home. You have to start thinking for yourself. And uh, after two years, we come back, both Jeff and I come back to the family business. And what do we see? A failing company. We could recognize coming back to a company. Jeff had been in Germany. He'd seen Adidas. He'd seen Puma. And, uh, and he's coming back and we're saying, look, guys, to my father and uncle who now are running the business, it's about time we've changed. We need to move up a gear or two because you've not done anything for the last 10, 15 years. You're making the same shoes and life's moving on. Mm -hmm. So we had a problem. I would love to def pick up on that story because, you know, for most people, you know, the, the dream, I guess, for most men is how can I make my my father proud? Uh, you've just given an example there, which I think is well worth emphasizing, is that you come back from national service and you've kind of, you know, you and Jeff, you said to your parents, look, you know, this business is failing. Um, I wonder if you could kind of talk about that in a little bit more detail about kind of, that dynamic and perhaps the breakdown um, that that kind of led to, I guess, with, with your father. And a very amusing story I read in the book about the uh, letter uh, opener, which I absolutely <laughs> love. <laughs> well, as, as you can well imagine, we, can't, we, we come back and we're a little bit more self-sufficient, a little bit more thinking you know, we can do things better, as you do. We're younger. I'm 23. No, I came out of the forces at 20. Uh, Jeff was 22. So we're very young. And, uh, you know, but we want to see something. We want to see. And, but problem. My father and uncle, they were fighting each other. They were five years difference in age, and they just did not get on. And my father had sort of developed machinery, or shoes using machines, my uncle was still doing the traditional hand-sewn running shoes that Fosters were really noted for. And uh, they, they had their own set of books. And they, they never talked to each other. Uh, they may grunt at each other as they walked past. So the business was going nowhere. You know, they needed to work together. Now, while my grandmother was alive, this sort of kept everything, I wouldn't say normal, but it kept a peaceful situation. Right. But when she died, oh, it was like World War Three. That was it. Wow. They, they just couldn't speak with each other. Well, yeah, it's not different for Adidas. You know, the Dassler brothers were the same. Um, Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they just didn't get on. They fought until Rudy, he left and set up Puma. Well, good idea. The Fosters, <clears throat> they just kept feuding. They just kept fighting. So you can imagine the business, it's going down. And we, we come back from two years away, we come back to it, and it's patently obvious that this is a big problem. And I remember saying to my father, look, Dad, we've got to change. We've got to do some things. You know, <clears throat> either you come with us and we'll set up another uh, business or you, you buy Bill out or you've got to do something <clears throat> because you're not getting on together. And all my father could say to me is, look, Joe, when you, your uncle's gone and I'm gone, this business is yours. You can do what you like with it. And I say, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the plan. Number two, this business will be gone long, long, long before you are. 
and where we're going to go. Well, he took no notice. That was it. Just no, didn't matter. So Jeff and I, we decided we're going to go to college. So at night school, there was a, Russendale College was a footwear college. And the beauty of going to the college was that uh, not only did we learn more about making shoes in different ways, we also made a lot of friends, a lot of people we could turn to. And that became a source of uh, help when we needed it. Because we did. When we decided eventually, okay, uh, father and uncle, we're never going to make any headway. Uh, we'd better go. So Jeff and I planned uh, to go. We actually rented an old brewery, Berry Brewery. Yeah, an old brewery. <clears throat> it was an old brewery as well. Berry Brewery had moved out of it a long time ago. And um, a bedding company had used it for some time. But we couldn't use the top floor. The top, because of the roof. The roof was absolutely shattered, and we had more tin cans up there than you could count. It was all, all gathered in the water. When it rained, it came through. Plus the fact that it had been raining for so long on that floor that it was dangerous. It was quite dangerous, that floor, and you had to be very careful where you stood. And mm -hmm. the bottom floor, somehow a brewery, they needed no windows in the bottom floor. I don't know what that was all about, but there were no windows, so we didn't use the bottom floor. So we used the middle floor. Which was great, did the job, but still, we considered the floor was a bit weak. So all our machinery was put around the side, and we we did all the hand making and whatever it is in the middle. So that was our our factory, which we decided we would eventually, as you say, I went in to see my father and say, Dad, Jeff and I are leaving, and he didn't he know me, and I said, Dad, did you hear me? We're, we're leaving. He, he turned around and said, what's that? I said, well, we've decided that uh, we're going to set up our own business, and so we're leaving. And with that, I should say, he picked up his letter opener. And I didn't know what he was going to do with it, but he came towards me with this letter opener. And he eventually just turned around and handed it to me. He said, here, stab me now. Not a very good way to say we're setting up a new business, but yeah, it took him a while to get over that. But yeah, we uh, that was the time when we left. And and just for people listening, I just want to clarify. I, I take it you didn't uh, actually stab him. I just want to, but that can't be there. No, no, I, yeah. he died of a heart attack some time later. <laughs> yeah, I just I just felt like that was an important caveat. <laughs> I didn't stab him, no. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so let's let's move forward because I'd love to come back to um kind of the you obviously you, you mentioned there this factory, it's got no windows downstairs, you've had to put all your machinery to one, to one side of the room. Uh, but I'd love to just kind of go a little bit before that. Um, so the name Reebok, I mean, everybody you know, listen to this, I, I they, they must know they must have heard of the brand Reebok, it's everywhere. I was in the gym earlier, I, I saw people there wearing Reebok shoes, Reebok t shirts. How did the company come to be called Reebok? <laughs> well, when we left, we set up the business uh, uh, as Mercury, Mercury Sports Footwear. That was our name. And we liked our name, Mercury Sports Footwear. What's wrong with that? No, it's good. <clears throat> In fact, we were doing quite well. We were sort of doing, well, cycles. We started off with cycle shoes. Um, and, and this was good. But 18 months into our business, uh, our accountant, 
he said, you're doing, Joe, you're doing well, you're doing okay, making some money, fine. Uh, about time you registered your name. Hmm? What? What? Registered the name? No, I saw a name. Well, you've got to register it, he said. Okay, why? Well, look, I'm not the only person that sees that you're doing well in the business. And there's plenty of other people out there might say, these Mercury shoes, hmm, who's good? We'll make some of those. Hmm. Then you've got a problem because who owns the name? You've got to own that name. Okay. What do I do? You know, the shoemakers, what do I do? Oh, you go and see this guy and he gave me a name of a, a patent agent. So they do all these registration things. They'd go see this, uh, this patent agent. Okay, we'll do. So I see the patent agent and say, hello. My accountant tells me I need to register my name, which is Mercury. And the, the guy said, okay, fine. We'll see what we can do with that. A week later, he came back to me. He said, Joe, problem is that um, the name is already registered. Oh. He said, but they will sell it to you. And the, the company is Lawson & Delta, which are part of British Shoe Corporation. They have it registered, but they're not using it. Oh, right. Uh, but you can, so you can buy it. Right. How much do they want? A thousand pounds. Oh, sorry. Thousand pounds. No, we just set a factory up for two hundred and fifty pounds. A whole right. factory, two hundred, a thousand pounds. No, we, we have not got that. We haven't got the money. They said, "Well, you could take them to court because they're not using it. You could take them to court and claim the name that is because of uh, they're not using it." How much did that cost? He said about a thousand pounds. Okay. No, we haven't got a thousand pound either to buy it or to go to court or whatever. So he said, Well, he pointed through his window. It was a nice day in May and uh, nice and warm window open. And he pointed through the window to Kodak. Okay, I said, Well, what's with Kodak? Well, he said, Kodak is made up. They made that name up. It's theirs. It means nothing else but Kodak. It means nothing else. Mercury, we all know Mercury. It has other connotations, so other people use it, but Kodak. So he said, if you want, bring me a name like that. But he said, don't bring me one name. Bring me 10. 10? I don't know if you thought we'd better give this a name. And you're sitting down and you're thinking, sometimes it's easy. Other times it's like, where do I go with this? Right. And we, we went to some funny places trying to think up names. We really did. But, you know, we said, okay, we'll sit down and think. Cougar. How about Cougar Sports? That sounds pretty good, yeah. Falcon. Falcon, yeah. Falcon Sports. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Why? Well, yeah, we could use that. Okay. Um, yeah, you can see where we're going. Animals or birds or whatever. But i got to take you back now. To 1943. I'm eight years old. And we're in the middle of World War II. Like COVID, nobody could go anywhere. It was like nowhere to go. No petrol anyway. If you had a car, no, nothing was happening. No lights on. So, okay. So it was all these stay-at-home holidays. And we had, we had some sort of running competitions going on. And I was entered into a 60-yard race. Okay. I have a secret weapon. I have foster spikes. Okay. So I win the race. Great. 
one race, one now, go up, collect your prize. <clears throat> what do I get? A dictionary. A dictionary. I'm eight years old. I was a moron. And it's an American dictionary. Webster's American dictionary. You know? I'm saying, just good to me, I, where's the football? You know, come on, I'm only a kid. Where's the football? I think I used a few expletives at the time because of, <laughs> I didn't didn't think the dictionary was a fair sort of, you know, I won this race. Anyway, I obviously uh, kept the dictionary because here I am now in 1960 and the dictionary sat here on the desk. An American dictionary. Okay. So I like the letter R. I think it's a strong beginning to any any word R and uh, I open my book at R and I start thumbing through soon I come across R double E B O K Reebok oh Reebok what's that well it's a small South African gazelle we're a running company gazelle fantastic that's it top of the list so we have our list of 10 names now with Reebok at the top I go back and I see my agent and I say look I need this. I'm, I'm giving you 10, but I need Reebok. But he's a lawyer. Okay, Joe, see what we can do. Yeah. We'll see what the uh, register comes up with. I think it took him two weeks to get through the whole of the 10. Uh, and he came back, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. Couple of small problems, but they're only phonetic. And nobody's using it, and we think you're pretty clear. Right. Okay. Can have it. However, the registrar's made a comment, and there's a caveat on this, and that is that uh, if anybody comes along and starts making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Okay. All right. But you know, Jeff and I, we say, yeah, that's never going to happen. Nobody's going to just do that because, no. <clears throat> so we became Reebok. However, because of the caveat, the registrar said, you're going to have to go in the B section of the register. It's a register. You know, we, by this time, it's like, we need a name. We need to get on with life. We need to be in love with that name. Put us in your B section. That's it. Great. So we're in the register and we start. We've got Reebok. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved it. You're now in the A section because now everybody knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal, unfortunately, has to take second place. So that's how we got Reebok. An amazing story. And I think that it's kind of teased me up um, nicely. So, you know, you're at this place, you've kind of gone a separate way from your father, um, from your uncle, you've gone through national service i imagine you kind of as you talk about in in the uh, book that builds up a lot of character builds up a lot of discipline um you've got yourself a factory which you know it seems sounds like it could collapse any day i'm not sure what health and safety would think of it in this day and age uh, but i i kind of love to uh kind of pick up on this point because when a lot of people think of being an entrepreneur they think of the glitz, they think of the glamour, they think of the buyouts. They don't think so much about, you know, the factories. They don't think about, for instance, in your case, and we talked about in the book that, you know, you were selling things for, for other people just to try to make ends meet. I wonder if you could talk about 
uh, kind of what that period was like, the sacrifices that you had to make just to stay in business? Well, I don't think we felt it was sacrifices. I think we um, absolutely felt that there are you know, the steps along the road and there's, there's ways to get your product into the retail area and selling other people's product. Well, if I went in, I can give you an example of uh, Fair Brothers. Fair Brothers, they they produced um, darts, dart flights. Well, they produced darts as well, but the flights. The flights from Feathers. And in Bolton, Bolton was a big centre for dart playing. I don't know why. But I'm fortunate, maybe. Uh, so I could go into uh, a sports shop called Windet. And every time I went in there, he'd give me an order for hundreds of dart flies. Hundreds. I mean, it was like, great, just write this down. You know, it, it made me probably £50 on that one visit, you know. And in those days, £50 was a lot of money. I may have sold a couple of pairs of shoes, <laughs> but it got me in. So selling other people's products, yeah, was okay. And, uh, and it gave me experience of what I needed to do. I'm trying to improve um, the possibility of, you know, increasing our business, growing our business uh, into something bigger. Because we were, we were in athletics. We, we were in cycling, but uh, that's another story. We actually came out of cycling and we were in athletics. We, we still did a bit of cycling, but we are in athletics. And, uh, you know, the big thing was soccer or football. Football was big. But unfortunately, by the time Jeff and I left the Foster brand, Mm. Uh, Adidas has come into the country and Adidas were very strong in football and for us to go into football that would have cost a lot of money because we would have needed promotion we needed an awful lot to really get in and make a name but we were making a name in athletics and this was great but you know I, I, I'm taking these products and I'm going around to uh, to store the stores and uh, I'm, I'm introducing myself as Reebok and the guy's saying, who's Reebok? Oh, oh here we are. I'll show you a product. Is it running shoes and uh, whatever? Yeah, nice product. But so many would just look up and say, look, I've got Adidas. I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Big question. That, it struck me. why He didn't need Reebok. So why did he need Reebok? I, I needed to find people who needed Reebok. How do I do that? Well, the retailer, was he was a man in between. I needed to get to the athlete. As it happened, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, it was all amateur in those days, the three A's produced a handbook. And the handbook had about between two, 400 clubs, the name and address of every secretary in those clubs. Simple, write a letter. Offer a discount. So, uh, and I, I sort of included the fact that if anybody in the club wanted to be my agent, he could have the discount. He could have the fifteen percent. Right. So, off went the letter, and uh, I was amazed. I ended up with about two hundred agents. Two hundred agents, and that's so our, our business is booming. Right, we found the way in now. We found the way into the athletes. And, uh, and then I'm getting phone calls 
phone calls from retailers, from sports retailers, saying, Mr. Foster, um, we believe you're selling direct to our uh, local athletic club. And we'd have a little conversation as to which club that was. And i say, yes, yeah, we're doing that. Um, and now he's saying, well, if you, if you stop selling, I will stop your product in the store. Okay. I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I only give 15% off. You, you get my product, you'll get it wholesale price, which is less than half the price. You get it wholesale price, and I'm sure you can give 15% off, and I'm sure most athletes would prefer to come to you than to go through the mail order process. Oh, about, about 90% of those phone calls turned into customers. So I did have quite a lot of retailers, but we didn't stop selling direct and uh, our, our business now was growing. But we're still only selling running shoes. We tried a football boot, you know, and yeah, we've got a few, but really, we're not a name. We were not influencing the footballers or influencing people who were watching football because those are the people. But I did know that really to expand our business, America, mm. we need in America because every co every every college, every university has coach. And coach is a god in America. He really is such an important person. And uh, there are so many universities, colleges across America. And we have 350 million people. Look at by that in that time we were about 60 million in the UK. And the spending power of people in America were about 10 times better than in the UK. So I thought, I've got to get to America, of course. Talk this through with Jeff and the family. We can't afford that. That's an expensive operation. <laughs> Going to America, how can we justify that? Well, well I have to think. However, <clears throat> I'm reading a magazine, Eurosport, and there's an advertisement from the government. And they're saying, we want you to advertise, and in particular to, the, to America. And we would provide you with a stand at the NSGA show. That's the National Sporting Goods of America in Chicago in February. We'll, we'll uh, not only provide you with a stand, but your return airfare and 50% of your living costs whilst you're out there, your hotel bills and food. Wow. But no more objections from the family. Joe, you go. <laughs> and this is Jeff and I, we, we had a very good relationship, so much different from my father and uncle. And Jeff loved the factory. He really loved it. And uh, he said, Joe, leave the factory to me. You do everything else. Well, everything else meant a lot of things. Uh, so designing, <clears throat> um, buying materials, a lot of the buying materials, I, I would do a lot of that. Um, but also mainly it was the selling. It was marketing and selling. So, uh, okay, we're going to America. This is 1968. And I, my first time, <clears throat> I went with a friend of mine, a friend called Bob Brigham. You, you may know of the uh, Ellis Brigham uh, outdoor stores. He's got quite a few these days. But uh, Bob had one in Manchester, so um, he, he was happy. I was making a boot for him, making a, a rock climbing boot, because our sort of business was fairly lightweight. This was a lightweight boot, nice. So 
we were good friends at that time. So we came. He went to look at the, we went to New York first. I don't know why, I don't know why even to this day, we decided to take a two-week ticket because it was, you know, I think it's still cheaper today if you do that. If you take a, an in and out from the same destination, it's cheaper to take two weeks because you're spending money there. Whatever right. reason, if you only take a one way, and you know, the government were paying. So I have no idea why we were worried about saving some money. However, we did a couple of nice uh, sort of sidetracks on, on this one. And we went into New York. Bob went looking at the outdoor stores. I went looking at the sports stores. Great. We got a good feel. We remember going around Times Square and I remember um, going to the restaurant, Tad's Steak Bar. And Tad's Steak Bar, for a dollar, for one dollar, you get a big steak and a big baked potato with a big slice of butter. And, oh, magnificent. For a dollar. <laughs> Bargain. Today, today you'll be lucky to get that for $20. $20. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the memories you get when you do these things. But we went on then to Chicago. And this is the first week in Chicago, first week in February. And Chicago is cold. Colder than I've ever known it. It was really, really cold, freezing. But however, the show is good. You get four days at the show. And, uh, yeah, the people love the shoes. Great. Yeah, where do we get your shoes from? Um... England. And it's like, oh. is that New England? <laughs> no, no. England. You know, across the water. Oh, near London. Yep. Near London. That was it. I realized I need a distributor. I needed someone over there. Um, okay. Well, Bob actually sold a few of his shoes. So we, and since we were making them, that means we did sell something. So we, we got up. But fortunately, the government really kept behind this scheme and uh, for many years. But this is 1968. And I knew I now needed a distributor. And when did I get my distributor? 1979. 11 years. It took 11 years and at least six failures and and we really tried had six different uh, attempts trying to get in there people who would take the product push but no you know we we were, we couldn't make it one of the guys actually spent four years with me just trying to sell the product get the product in but now this is where our our luck comes in. People say, some people say there's no such thing as luck. It's just being prepared for when the opportunity arrives. Well, you have to be there at the right time. And <laughs> there's got to be something that says, you know, I'm lucky to be born. I'm lucky to be doing this. In fact, I had, I had this conversation with a guy in New York. I get his name now. but uh, um, And he was saying he believed in luck because he said, you know, I'm an American. I live in New York. And I was born an American. That for me is lucky. So, you know, there's an element here that, yeah, if you're born in the right place, if you're there at the right time, you know, mm. yes, you can be prepared. So, but we were there at the right time in America. The end of the 1960s, running. Running in America became something of a big category. All of a sudden, people were out training for fitness. They're out on the roads and the business was growing. And with that business was a, a magazine, Runner's World. Runner's World 
provided all the information you needed for what are the best events, who won the last events, who are the top runners, was the next 5K, 10K, half marathons. So everybody who was out there running started to buy this magazine. By 1975, from being a single page in the late 60s, he was now a 50 to 60 full pay, full gloss colour magazine, fantastic magazine. Bob Anderson was the publisher. And I, I did go along to see Bob. Um, he was in Los Altos, I think it is, near, near San Francisco. And uh, he decided that he, he could tell everybody which was the number one shoe to buy. Mm. Now, you're talking about 350 million Americans. By this time, 10% of them were running. 35 million out there. And uh, if somebody said this is the number one shoe, 10% of that 10%, three and a half million want that shoe now. Of course, it was a Nike. And uh, Phil Knight, oh, thrilled, fantastic. But he's importing these shoes from Japan. Mm. Could, he, could he turn up the, the volume? Could he do that? No, couldn't do it. Everybody's saying, where are these shoes? Where's this number one? Well, the, the limited amount that could come in didn't really make much difference. And so the retail trade are getting really sort of, you know, you've told everybody this is number one, we can't get the shoe. So Bob Anderson ignored this and a year later decided he would say, no, there's a different shoe now. This is another number one shoe. I can't remember whether that was a New Balance, a Tonic, a Brooks or whoever. There's a lot of shoes out there that it certainly wasn't Reebok. I know that. Um, so the same thing happened. Whoever was number one, they still couldn't supply. A year later, he'd obviously learned a lot from the problem and decided instead of saying who's number one, he would do star ratings. So five star ratings, those would be the best shoes you could buy. Okay. Then you'd go down four star. And he'd rate them up. I don't know. It, they had a way of testing and whatever. But I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew we had a good chance. We knew what he was looking for. And uh, by 1978, we had Aztec. In fact, we had a gold range. The gold <coughs> range was Aztec was our training shoe. Midas was our racing <coughs> shoe. And Inca was our track spike. And we tested these out at Edmonton at the Commonwealth Games. And we got a lot of medals. We did really well. You did indeed. So I thought, yep, now, February 1979, NSGA, Chicago. I'm here with my proposed prospective five-star shoe. Brilliant. And everybody's into running these days. It was a big category now. And we got um, Kmart. I don't know if you know Kmart. Have you been to yeah, America? Yeah, very big retailers. Yeah. Kmart came along and said... Um, We'd like to buy 25,000 pairs. Well, we still haven't got a five-star shoe yet, but, uh, oh, great. I'm thinking 25,000 pairs. But, you know, prior to making the shoe and getting there, I have a friend who worked, for, well, he was setting up the sports division for Barter. You may not know Barter. Barter used to be on every, every high street in the country. <clears throat> they are still the biggest volume shoemaker in the world by volume, but they're big in India, 
big in Latin America. But at those days, they were big in Europe. And my friend Shaq said, well, you know, we'll, we'll make your shoes for you if you get some orders. Because 25,000 pairs, our small factory in Barrie, we could probably manage six months to do that. Probably take us six months. Well, that, that wouldn't satisfy anybody. But then came out, uh, a guy who came out and said, yeah, but um, we, uh, uh, we want a better price. Uh, well, Barter could do a better price, but not that, not the better that he was talking about. That meant for us, South Korea meant going to Asia. And again, by good fortune, I'd, uh, I'd met up with uh, the representative from one of the biggest groups in North Korea, South Korea, uh, uh, the London representative. So I'd met that guy and uh, they were interested in sampling for us. Right. So, okay, got that covered. Fine. Halfway through the show, a lot of people were coming onto the stand, Greg, but halfway through the show, a guy called Paul Feynman came onto the stand. And uh, he was running a company called Boston Camping. Mm. So, and, and he, I could tell he was pretty well fed up with Boston Camping. You know, they're selling tents, they're selling uh, fishing rods, you name it, all that sort of stuff in the outdoor business. But he had a business. <clears throat> and and Paul and I, I got on well with him. You know, some people you could just talk to. It's great. <clears throat> yeah. You know, they're saying, Joe, if you get five stars, I'll, I'm your man. I'll be your distributor. Fantastic. Okay, Paul. And we left it at that. In May, because this is, this is February, and the shoe edition will not be out until August. Well, the last week in July. But that's the shoe edition when we know if we're going to be five stars. And I go back in May. I go to see uh, Kmart. And I'm, and I'm introduced to the guy who'd come onto the stand. And he was part of about 60 other buyers, all sat in this room, <clears throat> doing what we were doing for Kmart. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, this could be my first 25,000 pairs. It could also be my last 25,000 pairs because they would probably judge the, uh, the product on how many they sell and how much money they make per square foot. Yeah. So I was feeling, no, that's not for me. So I, I trip on to Boston. He was in Detroit. The Kmart's head office, Detroit. So I go on to Boston and I meet up with Paul and his brother and his brother-in-law who were all part of Boston campaign. Oh, nice team. Jim Bartley was head of sales. Yeah, this is good. Fantastic. Great. Back I go to the UK and Paul decided he would come to see, well, he'd heard of Reebok. Just, what? Who, who was Reebok? It was the same question. So he came across. And uh, I think he was mightily disappointed at the size of our factory because it wasn't exactly big. It wasn't plush. It was just a factory in Perry and all well. By then we'd moved, but we'd moved to an old felting mill. Uh, which was just a, another mill in Lancashire. And, uh, yeah, but, okay, he wanted to go to some of the races to see if uh, Reebok was represented. Well, there was, we knew where Reebok was represented. We took it to three races. We knew the winner would be Reebok, and we knew half the field would be wearing Reebok. So I'm sure Paul knew. <laughs> we were taking him to the races that we were choosing. Um, but at least he saw that Reebok were there. 
we were not just a figment of somebody's imagination just turning up at the NSGA show with some shoes. No, we're a proper company. Right, so we went back. Last week in, in, uh, last week in July, uh, I ring Paul. I said, Paul, can you go to the kiosk and see, see if the runner's world is there? Because by now, it should be out and see if we did, how we did with the five stars. It took him about an hour to come back. But mind you, I rang him about 12 o'clock hour time, which is something like seven o'clock Boston time. So I think it took him a bit to get up and get himself out. However, an hour later, he came back, Joe, a stick, five stars, you've got it. Fantastic, absolutely. That, that was a sort of a moment. We knew that we'd got in to uh, the American market. But more than that, Inca and, uh, and Midas had also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes, and that got us into America. Amazing. And it's worth me pointing out to you and adding, I think, a little bit more detail from, from reading your book, that uh, within that story, um, you know, if you pick up the book, you will realise the struggle the the massive rejection i guess that you alluded to it took you 11 years to get into america you said you were rejected um six times along the way there was problems with scaling the business mm. so many little things along the way did you ever think at any point did you ever feel like quitting at any point in that journey well <clears throat> i guess progress was slow we you know there was always some even though we failed there was always something positive about it. We we're always, you know, we we're always able to say, well, you know, we, we're going to make this. And you know, I don't think I ever got um, very low with it. I, I knew that we needed to find that, that gatekeeper. We needed to find something. We needed to get in there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like... What else do you do? We, we didn't have what we have today. We didn't have social media. We didn't have computers. Uh, the only thing you can do is to keep going knocking on the door. And it's right. like many salesmen say, you know, you can knock on the door a hundred times, but you're getting nearer to somebody opening it. Right. <laughs> and right. so this was probably my approach to this. Uh, the, and we were having success. You know, we... We had Ron Hill won the he won the Boston Marathon in in Reebok and and he, and he won it in record time. Um, we had many other athletes who were doing really well in America, but it it was was finding the way that we, it needed money. It needed somebody who could. Um, even though we got Paul Fireman, Paul Fireman didn't have much money. We found that. And the other thing I found out is that uh, when we agreed that he would be our distributor and I went over next time, Boston Camping didn't exist. They'd closed down Boston Camping because I thought this would be a nice bolt-on business. So I must admit, it, it did worry me a, a bit at that time. And I think within the first 12 months, Paul Fireman actually had a heart attack. <laughs> and we were, oh. You know, so there were a lot of sort of uh, have we got there? Have we, you know, moments of wondering how we're going to manage this? And of course, the, for the first 20,000 pairs, Barter came in and Barter made the shoes. Yeah. But the problem is that uh, Barter, a big company, they had their own rubber factory. 
So we just started using EVA, which is a, a plastic, a blown plastic, which is very spongy, nice, but very light. And uh, <clears throat> you can make that in a rubber factory. And so Barter, making these shoes, made their own rubber, or made their own EVA. 90% of it, perfect. 10% for some unknown reason was undercured. So instead of it being nice and spongy, it collapsed. So another thing they did is that Bata, they were shoemakers. And so they wanted to make the shoes efficiently. So instead of taking our designs as they should have done and absolutely copying it, they decided, no, they could do this a bit rounder and they could do this a bit different and that would be easier for their machinists to sew. Great. But, you know, our biggest tragedy right at this moment, we just got in there, it was great. Unfortunately, my brother, Jeff, he, uh, he was hospitalised. I was over in America at the time. Um, and the problem was that he had stomach cancer and they operated. And unfortunately, an embolism, he just died with an embolism. Mm. So I did see him, but uh, I mean, there was nothing that could be done. So we're just on this cusp, but we're just ready. And at this point, Jeff would have been going down to Barter. He would have been overseeing because that was his job. He was product. He would have been overseeing what was going on. Because he wasn't there, they did the changes. And, uh, and those changes... When they got to America, it wasn't the changes that was the problem. It was the fact that the EVA that they'd made collapsed. So we had 20,000 pairs of, oh, what do we do? Well, in a way, it helped Paul Feynman because he didn't pay for the product. And if yeah. some came back, he just shipped a different pair. If it came back, just ship a pair. So in a way, it gave us time until we could get the Korean production which was great nothing wrong with the barter production apart from the fact that they they've got this new eva mix they've got that just off and the fact they changed the design but we we could change it back again that was that we had, you know but i say unfortunately jeff at that time uh, i lost him and uh, i guess that that's one of the things that you know a big big tragedy because it was Fantastic, but it probably probably made me more and more determined that we're gonna we're gonna make this work, and uh, and and we did. You know, we, we eventually became number one. But uh, it was, yeah, we went through some big uh, sort of moments which were near tragedy, and yet we came through. I I w actually wanted to ask you this question because this is one of the things I wanted to pay tribute to you about in your book because you know this podcast an educational podcast i read a lot of books for a lot of people I interview I, I read their books and a lot of people they will paint i guess a distorted or an unbalanced picture of of their life of their journey to success but man you talk about it all in the book you talk obviously about the tragedy of of your brother dying you talk about the very very tragic loss of your daughter dying um, you mentioned um, in the um, just by there you found that those things they they spurred you on. I wonder if you could kind of talk about that about how those tra tra tragic losses, uh, how you kind of dealt with those. Well, I, I think it's 
I mean, I know these are tragedies and you try and compare them with almost going out of business because a distributor goes out of business. A lot of those, uh, but, but I think you have to have, your concentration has to be on what's good. We know what's bad, but what's good? How, how can we sort of you know, build on the good? How can we scale up on, on this? What, what can we do? How can I replace people? You can't. But what you can do is to say, well, we can't replace them, but this business has to keep going. And, you know, we, uh, while, while Jeff was there, like me, we had ambition. He had ambition. And I'm pretty sure that uh, seeing where we eventually got to, he would have been really, really pleased with all that. Because whilst we went in with running, um, you know, things that happened, we became... Well, we became an aerobics company. We became a woman's uh, mm. fitness company. You know, we were only small when we arrived in America. But the fact that these things kept moving, it helps. I mean, okay, had there been tragedies and trouble tragedies, but I, I guess I was able to cope with them one at a time as they came along. You know, sometimes you get double things, things happen. But, and, and maybe... Maybe with uh, with a problem with the barter product, you know, that. But it, I, I felt a bit uh, sort of arm's length with that. You know, barter had to get put that right, and you know, in America they they were having the problem of the sales. So I think I think in a way you look at like I say, well, I can't just sit down and put my head in my hands and just say that's it. I think you have to. I think it's probably human nature which says, no, there's a way out. And we've yeah. got to find a way out. We've got to find that. It took me, it took three people to replace Jeff, what he was doing. It took me getting another man to do the designing and uh, pattern making. Took another person for that. Somebody to look after the uh, the office at the, uh, the factory. And somebody to look after production. Uh, it took three people. And, and it wasn't just the first time. I, I had a couple of shots at getting the right people. But I, I guess you, uh, you know, it's probably being driven. <laughs> I, I could probably see a goal needed to, we needed to achieve. And I could also see that once, once we got into America, I mean, that was probably the major, the major market for us. So there was always something <clears throat> which was, taking me forward it was always something to say wow yeah we can keep on moving on this one and uh, I mean you, you just can't sort of uh, you can't talk your way out of your your main partner and brother dying there's just there's no way it, it is a tragedy in itself um, but uh, I do think just keeping going. I, I think it would have been worse to have sort of thought, no, this is this is too much. So, <clears throat> and Jeff himself would have wanted us to really take the best out of what what we just achieved. We just achieved uh, an incredible breakthrough to get into America. So I'm pretty sure that those were sort of th thoughts at the time. It's it's hard to say because I was. I was all over the place. I was on airplanes. I was wherever. I was doing whatever it was to uh, to get this product to work. But even though we were running, I say it was aerobics that really grew our company. 
Yeah, man, absolutely. And thank you for, for talking about those um, those things, by the way. Um, I would love to kind of ask you, uh, you know, because you obviously built Reebok into a, a, a behemoth. I don't feel like that's, that's hyperbolic of me to say it's, you know, number one in the UK. Why did you leave? <clears throat> well, you know, when, when we got into aerobics, and that in itself is a story. And if you read the book, you pick that up. We were a $9 million company. Five years later, we were a $900 million company. So we'd gone from almost zero to a billion in five years. Um, and by that time, you know, you've, you've noted all the challenges. By that time, the challenges are gone. <laughs> right. For me, uh, We'd overtaken Adidas. We'd overtaken Nike. We became the number one sports shoe company at nearly four billion. And uh, after putting on America and letting America grow, and you know, really started working with, I uh, I spent the next few years traveling, putting on distributors. I put on another thirty different uh, countries distributors. So I was flying a lot around the world, be it Australia, Japan. You, you name it, I was going. And so uh, eventually, when, when we got to the point where we had a ton of lawyers, a lot of accountants, and a lot of people in between selling and doing all sorts of designers, um, you know, for me, when Jeff said, you do the rest, well, the rest was, was never being done by a, an awful lot of people. <clears throat> and so for me, the which is, which is right, and... I, I thought that my journey hasn't ended, but it's time to step aside. It's time because a lot of those people, you know, and, uh, and I think you take people on and the right people are the ones who can do things better than you can. The ones who can actually take that next step and make things grow. You know, I, I don't know anybody who just can sort of be there at the top and have all the ideas and you can't, you know, but we, we had developed um, a winning culture, a culture that attracted the right people and, and they could see this growth. So they, you know, there were so many people in the, com in, in the company and I ended up uh, three times a year, I'd be flying around the world. Um, wherever I went, I'd be picked up by a limousine, um, stay at the best hotels, <clears throat> go to the best restaurants and talk about the business. But, you know, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? And, you know, I mean, apart from that, I'd, I was also hosting uh, pro celebrity tennis at um, Monte Carlo. This was in aid of the Princess Grace Foundation. And so, you know, I was meeting all these A-listers from, uh, uh, from Hollywood. I, I've got a list, if you want. John Forsyth, Linda Evans, John Collins, Frank Sinatra, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Jane Seymour, Robert De Niro, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, Veronica Hamill. Dolph Lundgren, that was he was he man. Yeah. Uh, Robert Wagner and Jill St. John. You know, these are just sort of a few of all the people we used to bring into Monte Carlo and have this uh, wonderful experience of a tennis uh, uh, tournament with with um, well with the top tennis players as well. So yeah, but you get to that point, and you think, well, this is this is okay, but it's not real. You know. I'm enjoying this, but, you know, it's only a period. And I don't want to keep on flying around the world. Time for me to sort of move away. So, like I say, whilst I retired, it, it was a bit like um, 
Hotel California. And, uh, you know, you, you can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> so so I, I checked out. But leaving, well, I don't suppose uh, I'll ever leave in terms of the fact that, you know, as a founder, you still remain a founder. A lot of CEOs come and go, but uh, as a founder. And now, of course, having written the book, mm. the book, uh, you've read it. A lot of people are now wanting us to do things. So we're, we're off to America um, with a couple of meetings there. But next year, we, we've got a list of next year. It's going to be about between eight and ten months in America doing all the different uh, venues and whatever. So it's I want is to sell the book. New challenge. New challenge. And, and you know, it, again, I think it takes us back to the conversation. You know, we, you know, you, you, you seem full of life, full of enthusiasm, full of energy. And I guess that's a secret in itself, the longevity. So, man, I, I truly admire your passion. Um, I just got a couple of quick fire questions for you before okay. we, we sign off. Um, one of the things, obviously, you know, we've spoken about your book today. You've talked us through this incredible journey. There's been ups, there's been downs. I'd love to know if you, someone that's listened to this podcast today, you know, they, they perhaps have someone that wants to go into entrepreneurship. What would uh, a little bit of wisdom be that you could impart from your incredible journey to that person? Well, I guess it's something that, uh, I mean, I've been asked many times and the, the same answer. I mean, I, I was asked this way, 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 way back. And for me, it was, you've got to have fun. And you've got to have a lot of fun. So first one's fun. Second one's more fun. And third one absolutely make sure you're having fun. Because if, <laughs> if, if you're not having fun, it, it's no go. I love it, man. You've written a fantastic book that for all the people listening to this, they can just swipe up on the episode and they will get a copy of your book. For the people watching on YouTube, it's in the description below. You've obviously got a bookshelf behind you. Yeah. I would love to know, we have. Are, are there any books that you've read that have greatly impacted your life that you could recommend to our audience? That's hard to say. Again, I've, I've been asked that one. Um I, I guess I read more fiction if I'm reading it's fiction. And uh, I, I like Grisham. I think he writes some very interesting uh, books. Uh, and also Brown, you know, some of those, uh, The Vinci Code and things like that. I, I, think it, I think it's using your imagination. And if it fires your imagination, I, I think that's, that's good because you read fiction, you actually see something when you're reading it. You know, you, you're actually seeing the characters. You, you build them yourself. And I think for me, in many ways, Reebok was fiction. Reebok was building the characters, building whatever it is. If you can think it, you can build it. So, you know, mm. we try that. So I think it's if it catches imagination, you know, it's good. I, I have also, I, I did read Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog. <laughs> and there's a, a certain amount of similarity between our journeys. Right. You know, just, uh, and it was good. You know, he was in America, I was in Europe. Um, I think he had a good advantage of being in America because that's where the market was. I think I had a different advantage of being in a shoemaking family. So we each had our own uh, sort of characters there. And you know, so reading the book, yeah, I, I used to read more than I read now. I think, unfortunately, now my, if I'm reading, it puts me to sleep. 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, I think that's something to do with age. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, both uh, fascinating books. Uh, but if you only pick one, I recommend uh, yours. Not only because we have the same first name, but I, I truly, truly enjoyed your book. Um, but yeah, man, um, my last question for you today, before I ask you to sign off, send these guys wherever you'd like them to go, any recommendations you have, is the question we sign off all of our podcasts with. And the last question I'm going to ask you today is what makes a life worth living? Well, we, I, I think it's, when, when I say achievement, achievement doesn't necessarily mean say you've got to build a sports company to become number one. You know, you can achieve many things. And I, I think it's, it's worth living if, you've ha- if you have challenges. And if you don't have challenges, I don't think uh, you can really value life. You've got, to have, you've got to put yourself in a position of challenge. And because challenges, and it's like problems. You know, we always found we look at the problem. Okay, initially we we worried about problems, but we soon realize that that's a challenge, and that means that you can pivot, you can go somewhere else. You've got to. So I, I think there are challenges, and uh, I think in life, yes, a life we're living is if you <clears throat> can continue to challenge, just like now with the book. The book is a challenge, and they're asking us to go and fly all over the place. And that's nice. You know, we uh, we enjoy the challenge and, and it's good. You know, I, I could have retired as I did at uh, 50, 54. I was only 54 and I stepped back out to Rebo. And like I say, stepping out of a company is different from retiring. And so I guess really in many ways, I, I never retired. It was always, let's do something. Let's, what's the next challenge? So make sure you have challenges and make sure you go for them. Don't always win but you get up and go again. Beautifully said. Man, tell these guys where they can connect with you, uh, if there's anything you'd like to recommend them, and where they can, of course, get the book, which will be linked below. Well, they can get the book on Amazon, or let me check with Julie. It's uh, our website. jwfosterheritage.com jwfosterheritage.com And if they go on there, they can have a signed book. So if you buy it from us, you can get a signed book. Buy from Amazon by all means, no problem. But uh, and, and a lot of the major uh, stores they do they do sell it. And one of the things that uh, we we probably side to side by Shoe Dog because that's how they put them on the on the stand. So and Richard Branson, by the way, we we, we see ourselves up there in these business people. So we feel very honoured to be amongst all other big business people. But yes, at the bookstore as well on our website. Or Amazon. Simple. Everything we'll link below. Joe, thank you so, so much for coming on the show, for sharing your story, for writing a great book, for all you've done and achieved, and for imparting your wisdom onto our audience. It's been a true privilege for me. Well, it's been a pleasure, Joe, and uh, thank you. It really has. We enjoy those different questions. This is the beauty of the podcast. There's, you know, the story's the same, but the questions drag something different out of the... uh, out of that story. So thank you for that.